mental health can be a difficult topic to talk about. I'd like to change that. I'm Marcus Pipworth and welcome to the Ministry of Change podcast. Hi, yes, welcome to the Ministry of Change. Um, for anyone that's sort of listened quite regularly, you'll know that one of the reasons that I started Ministry of Change was because I really wanted to explore what else was out there in terms of navigating mental health. I, I found from my own experience with depression and anxiety and, and through speaking to other people that the general sort of way it works is you go to the GP. Eventually it took me years to get to that point. But you go to the GP, you speak to them and they will generally prescribe you sort of talking therapy or medication. And and, and that's not really to, to fault them, I think the NHS is massively overstretched and uh and it's I don't I don't know what the solution from that point of view is but I think I wanted to go out and talk to the people which sort of doing other things which are already exploring sort of different paths and um I've met loads of really interesting people doing things which I just hadn't ever imagined existed before I sort of started exploring so it's been great and um so I'm really excited about this conversation. It's with a woman called Kim Brown, who uh, she lives on the Isle of Wight. And so while I was down the Isle of Wight recently, I recorded this conversation with her. And so Kim's a really fascinating person. She's worked in sort of mental health in some aspect for, for most of her life, really. And currently she runs programmes which really sort of bring people back into nature and they, they sort of tackling the, the disconnect we have as a society to nature. And she also runs this um, f- fabulous program called Wolf Medicine, which I've just spoken to lots of people that it re- has really helped them. And that sort of even incorporates, uh, well, as the name suggests, um, wolves and uh, other animals such as horses in the therapy sessions. Um, I will let, I'll let Kim explain more uh, in, in the conversation, but I think it's a really good one and I hope you enjoy it. As I say at the beginning of all of my podcasts, if you do uh, like the Ministry of Change podcast, then I would really appreciate it if you could take a few moments to go on iTunes and rate and review it and subscribe. Uh, that way I can reach more people and I, I just really feel passionate about spreading these stories as far as I can. So thank you for that. But for now, I will hand you over to my conversation with Kim. I hope you enjoy it. Probably helps then if I start with just like a little brief biography of how I started in working in the field of mental health and what led me into it. Um, When I was a child, my parents divorced when I was quite young and my mother remarried. And the chap that she remarried, his family were all incarcerated, as I can only explain it, because this was the 50s, 60s, in a psychiatric hospital. His mum uh, and four sisters, there was five of them, that were all diagnosed with having uh, a schizophrenia at the time. And, of course, the treatment then was... Uh, we didn't have the types of drugs that we have available now, so the treatment was primarily hospitalisation. And so... A lot of my early life was spent going to the psychiatric hospital, this big hospital, and just being left to roam around it and meet people and uh, why they, my mum and my stepdad, met with all the family. And uh, uh, I soon grew accustomed to people acting in very different ways and knew who who I could go and talk with and who 
best to just leave alone quietly to themselves. And of course, old psychiatric hospitals in those days had the most beautiful grounds. They were institutions, and some of the practices, when we look back on them, were really poor, especially around that time. And uh, But they were places that people could go when they were suffering from extreme stress and be amongst a quietish environment in terms of nature being outside and uh, being part of a, a bigger picture while still being cared for. And when I say the bigger picture, I mean in terms of the environment and nature. But of course, we've long lost those now and we have um, modern treatments in terms of uh, anti psychotics and uh, medications that are available to people. So my early life was really spent growing up around quite severe mental illness uh, and being part of a, uh, an institution and a system. Uh, and then when I was about sort of 12 and I hit adolescence, I found that I experienced personally uh, a really bad time. Uh, I'll come back to that later, but at the time, I mean, I know now that I am a highly sensitive person uh, because of the work done by Professor Elaine Aaron in New York. It's very well recognised across the states being HSP. But in the UK, there is only actually three support groups and there's one in Brighton, there's one in London uh, and there's one on the Isle of Wight that I've established once I learnt more about it. 20% of the population are HSP and um, it's it's... Not a, it's not a, a diagnosable disorder. It is a way of being. It's just how you are. And what they've proven is it's not just you're sensitive and you cry a lot. It's um, to do with sensory processing. And they've done a lot of research with brain scans. And they show that people that are HSP, HSP process information at a much, much deeper level. So... They're the type of people that would take something and look at it from every single angle and process it and question it. And so like, often they're often described as having or diagnosed as having depression, anxiety, some of the so-called neurotic disorders because of the way that they will process information. And they often get misdiagnosed. But I'm trying to raise awareness now of HSP, especially children that are HSP that will suffer at school. But I will come back to that because I'll go back to where I'd started, uh, well, I'd finished in my adolescence, was um, it sort of kicked home, the HSP really, really kicked home about that time. So around the age of 12, I was using drugs, uh, sort of being a little bit wild, trying to counteract this deep, emotions and sensitivity that I was experiencing didn't know how to deal with it and uh, of course there was absolutely no awareness of it whatsoever Um, and from there I then uh, I experienced the death of a child so my daughter died which sort of threw me a little bit I wouldn't say over the edge but threw me sort of deeper into this sensory processing and um, the grief was absolutely overwhelming and so I decided that the only thing I could do with my life really was to go into psychiatry because it was something that I 
I knew and understood. I understood that world. It didn't frighten me. I, I wanted to go into it and try and understand more, try and uh, make a difference. So I ended up, when I was 17, going into psychiatric nursing because I'd had uh, my little girl when I was quite young. I was 15. And um, from there I developed a career. So I went from psychiatric nursing to general nursing. I worked in casualty in London. Um, I then came back to psychiatric nursing uh, and worked mostly with young teenagers and young adolescents because there was a part of me that identified with my own problems with with, um, that particular group of young people. Worked a lot with children in prison. Um, Eventually I ended up uh, as a an advisor at the Home Office on children and young people in the criminal justice system and mental health problems. And that's mainly because I'd worked in a drug action team. Um, I'd trained as a midwife. I'd done a, a, a mass of different things, as well as academic things, constantly trying to fill my brain with... Uh, use the, the skills I had from sensory processing to try and examine things in the minutest detail... It can be pretty exhausting being HSP, pretty exhausting. And uh, uh, eventually I became CEO of a charity and then I had a breakthrough. I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't play this game of being academic and uh, career and, and I wanted to do truly what my heart wanted to do. And so I threw in everything. I threw in this good job, this salary. Uh, uh, by that time, I had a doctorate in health science and had been off studying in the States. I'd been fortunate enough to uh, study equine-assisted psychotherapy, the involvement of horses, and study with some of the indigenous populations in the States, uh, funded by a scholarship. So I came back and I, I thought, I can't do it anymore, I just can't do this no matter what the salary is, no what the prestige, I've got to do it, follow my heart so I set up an organisation called Nature Therapy which was basically just using all the resources around us that we have available and Nature Therapy is about using your senses because we live in a, and I was certainly really guilty of that, was just living in my head, in my brain, and trying to rationalise and logicalise and academic academicize, if that's not even a word, <laughs> everything that I came across. But I want, it, it's not how we as humans should be living. We've lost our heart source in, in this race to... Um, this race to make everything proven academically we've lost we've lost an awful lot and what we've lost primarily is our connection with the world around us with with our sense of reality and the connection with the world and you see it more and more as mental mental illness is um, happening more and more it's more people saying they feel disconnected in some way they they don't feel a sense of belonging and and connection to anything around them which causes this disconnect so i set up nature therapy and the first one of the first programs i set up was around nature therapy and dementia care because 
suddenly I had some time. I wasn't constantly rushing off to work or to university or to do some research. And uh, spent some time with my dad who developed dementia. So I developed a programme and then um, Portsmouth City Council funded it for me to train people around using nature for people with dementia. And we found that there was a massive, massive drop in the rate of aggression amongst people and agitation once they were outside. But that was only what I'd experienced 40 years ago working in a psychiatric hospital Instead of keeping people masses of drugs, just being able to go out for a walk into the quiet environment around the hospital could make a huge difference. And since that time, there's now becoming more and more research about the impact of nature on humans. But from that programme, I developed a programme called Wolf Medicine that I run now. And that was because I had some funding from the Ministry of Defence to work with people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, And it wasn't just returning more vets uh, with PTSD because actually the Ministry of Defence are very, very poor at recognising PTSD for a variety of reasons. One, of course, is having to support people once they're diagnosed and um, pay for them. So they're not very good at recognising PTSD, but they did... I did get some funding to help develop a programme. So I worked with some people that had PTSD to, do, to develop the, what was the prototype of wolf medicine. And because a lot of the work I'd done had been with horses, we involved horses um, and we involved being outside in nature primarily. So I then started to notice that those that had PTSD were... And when I did some testing with people, 70% of them were HSP. Uh, and it started to click in, really, that actually, if you're a highly sensitive person and something happens to you, it, in the PTSD world, there seems to be this, I haven't had it as bad as you, you know, I, I shouldn't be suffering. It doesn't make any difference. If it's traumatic to you, it doesn't matter if it, somebody, you know, had an awful... What, might appear on the surface a worse experience than you it was traumatic to you and in terms of hsp the processing of that will cause and the continual processing of that will cause the trauma but so i noticed that say 20 percent of the population globally are hsp but for people with ptsd 70 percent in my study were hsp And also, 70% had addiction problems. So there was a huge link between being HSP, suffering from PTSD, complex PTSD, which comes from childhood as well as traumatic PTSD, and uh, addiction. There was a real link between the three of them, those particular ways of being. So I'm recruited some people to help me develop this program further and what we started to do was also involve wolves in the program Um, so we were using a lot of ancient knowledge things like medicine wheels labyrinths all the things that I'd been fortunate to go off and and study as part of my scholarship and learn about Um, and we were using forest bathing we were using lots of different techniques that are are sort of coming back and being reinvented basically 
the Japanese, we use a lot of work from Japanese. It didn't have a religious, one religious context, but it had a, a spiritual context. And what I was finding that the when somebody becomes mentally unwell, they are given care, they're given medication, their social, their well, their physical needs are met. But what doesn't happen in contemporary uh, mental health services is their spiritual needs aren't met. And that is often what people are seeking, some connection, some understanding of how this universe works, where they fit in with that, um, what their, their particular way of being means within that, however it's expressed in terms of a label of mental illness. And it was the spiritual element that was making the biggest, biggest difference. We worked with people in the 12-step programme, which of course is a, uh, an addiction programme that looks at something higher than yourself. Uh, and for the people that couldn't identify with a god, they were would identifying with nature, so the, the nature work fitted really well with that. Uh, and the use of this ancient knowledge and symbols and, uh, and things that have been tried previously for thousands of years, and of course where we deliver, where we're, we're sat doing this podcast now, is a chaotic area. All this... Uh, all this line along the downs here that people can't see on the podcast yeah. but is a, um, absolutely an area of outstanding natural beauty is ancient Celtic uh, where ancient Celtic life took place so there's ancient burial grounds tumuli, there's standing stones and there's a ley line that runs or a ley that runs uh, a line of energy that runs through all of this that we also tap into on the wolf medicine course it's having some phenomenal outcomes in terms of people changing their paradigms and their ways of thinking. Into, we also measured with... We did a proper research study, otherwise it's never going to get any, um, <laughs> any way forward with, with, uh, with uh, sort of the public health departments or NHS. So we've got to have some measurement. And we measured addiction and the improvements in addiction, nine... Le- levels of a uh, line different um uh not what's the word i can't think not stages of addiction but nine different sort of related to addiction like relationships and self-care and mental health Uh, and there was a statistically significant improvement in the 92 people that we we measured with it but more than anything it's it helps people not only connect with nature they connect with the people that they are on the course with because it's an intensive one-week course that they come on. So they, they form these really strong relationships, their own pack, their own tribe. Um, but they also find a, a better connection with themselves in terms of finding their own power. So Wolf Medicine isn't... We don't call it a healing program. I'm not an expert or any, any of the people that um, help facilitate this. They've all been through the program themselves. What it is, is helping individuals find their own power by being a catalyst to set up the situation. So we set up the labyrinth and you experience the labyrinth in however way you want. You walk it in however way you want. Or when we meet with the wolves, you would take away from that 
what you need to take away that you learn from the wolves in terms of their strategies for survival. Because all of it's based on metaphor and symbol, which is extremely powerful in human existence. Long before we had language, we used um, different ways of communication. I've talked an awful lot, haven't I? Sorry. I mean, one thing I was intrigued like when you say uh, meet with wolves, like where where do you meet with wolves? Where would <laughs> well, one we, go to meet a wolf? Um, we yeah. used to go to the wolf centre in Reading, but recently one of their wolves got out, and um, somebody let one of the wolves out. So they are a fantastic centre in terms of caring for the wolves. They then decided that because of the risk of that wolf was nearly shot because it was out and people just see wolves as being vicious killers. Uh, um, Wolves have completely... They've been much maligned down through history and part of the... um, part of the wolf medicine program is often people with mental illness or addiction problems are, are much maligned in the same way so there's an identity with a wolf that they've been wrongly wrongly treated um, they decided to shut it down so we now go to a place in the new forest we found a pack in the new forest where we can go to it's only one day out of the five day yeah. course one day we spend with horses doing some equine um therapy work there's nothing to do with riding horses so how does the equine therapy work so equine therapy works again it it, all of this is about metaphor and symbol and what we project from ourselves from our own understanding our own reality and also about using our senses so with the equine work it is basically around communicating at a different level with animals so wolves and horses both communicate through physical communication we've developed language which has basically really got in the way of our our experiencing a a, um, a blissful existence basically because language gets in the way 80% of our communication as humans remains non-verbal but of course virtually 100% with horses and wolves is non-verbal so we spent a lot of time watching observing and relating that to how we experience life um, and projecting what we know onto the animals so there is something quite powerful and being validated by a large powerful animal as well so Often for people that have not don't, not felt validated in their life in any way, if a horse comes up and joins with them and wants to be with them without any, you know, collars and ropes and pulling it along, the horse just joins naturally with them. It is an incredibly powerful validation for that person. And I've worked with people in the past that, that I've just done equine therapy with, and they've come along and had a massive, massive life change experience. And I can remember one girl saying, "My, the people I work with never validate me in the way that that horse has just done. And she went back and gave a notice in and moved away and started doing something that she absolutely loved. And that's quite often happens in equine therapy. It's so powerful, one-off, as a metaphor for your whole life. And it's a bit sort of zen. How you do something is how you do everything. So you can 
hold a mirror up to people and say, look how you interacted with that horse. How does that, how do you interact with people in your life? How does that reflect that? But people have gone back and, and just chucked in jobs. They've left, gone off travelling. Mm. And uh, with a one session, it's been incredibly powerful. So I've been involved in working with horses and equine therapy work for about 20 years now. And the reason I got interested in that first, uh, nature therapies developed obviously from that, is that um, I found because uh, I never had any money, I never, I used to, and I absolutely adored horses. I used to get horses that were considered a bit naughty and nobody could really manage them. And then I thought, actually, that's my work world as well. I'm working with young people that are considered naughty and nobody can manage them. And, and I work with both in the same way, which is really about validating them, being non-judgmental, um, just being consistent in your approach and gentle in your approach, uh, no nasty surprises, and actually just getting alongside. My granny used to say, "Just walk a mile in my moccasins," and just walk a, walking a mile in people's footsteps alongside them. And I realised there was a real big parallel between working with horses and, and young people, and actually anybody, really, just to be alongside them and give them gently give them experiences set them up with experiences where they can't fail don't set them up for experiences where they can fail which when we work with young people especially experiencing mental health problems we can set them up to fail with some of the things we are we're asking them to do especially around schooling and education um yeah yeah no i think that's really interesting i think um I've talked about it with quite a few people this this sort of and I, I well I think it's probably more than what I've discovered over the last few years is the three sort of d- depression and things like that is, is is for a long time thinking it's something that I need to sort of cure something that like is not right about me um, and I need to sort of get rid of it and then sort of slowly coming through that to the realisation that it's not that's not it it's actually something it's about the whole ecosystem that I'm part of that doesn't work work with the way I am it doesn't that's not it's basically the environment I'm in is not conducive to me being healthy right like and, and and then I think the more and more I speak to people I think that seems to be the case for the vast majority of things that we label as sort of a mental health problem it just seems to be actually I think a story it's a problem with the story of living like the, the, the thing the way the world's structured around yeah. you and not necessarily yeah. that and it's 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 finding that sense of validation without having to search externally for it yeah and finding creating your own story yes yeah I think you're right Marcus I think um, the environment that we've created for humans is not sustainable for our mental health and well-being, for our spiritual path or what, whatever you want to say. And when you think back to some of the indigenous populations, if somebody was starting to express what we would consider signs of psychosis, 
often they were the people that were set to become the village shamans or the you know the village yeah. and they were taken and helped through that process of what they were experiencing um probably taught to journey taught a whole different set of ways of being and not to be frightened by it how to experience it by people that you know like the existing shaman probably but we've lost that we've lost that now when people do start to experience psychosis it's considered something seriously wrong and we must medicate them to within an inch of their life where they can't even experience anything from their senses anymore um and i i don't know what the answer is i don't know how we can go back to accepting mental illness as part of part of our culture because it's because of what's happened and the stigma associated with it as we've gone forward how do we start to roll that back in some way and i think starting to look at how we address spirituality in mental health services it's not something you ever ever consider in terms of a care plan for somebody or um treatment order however you want to call it their spiritual way of being is theirs alone uh, if they have a certain religion you might make sure they get the right food or they might get the right uh, access to um, resources that they need but you wouldn't ever help put a path for them and say well you can try this or you can try this in terms of feeling more connected spiritually at a metaphysical level well, I guess there's, there's like there's so much baggage around the word spiritual that people just don't want to go there at all. No. I mean, I know that from my own experiences, that's basically what I used. To, as soon as someone mentioned spiritual, or like, you'd just be like, "Well, that's a load of nonsense." Yeah. Don't, like, okay, yeah. and like, let's look for the thing that has. Um, well, I guess it goes back to what you were saying about sort of the that, that over academic. I can't say <laughs> over intellectualization. Yeah, intellectualization, and so it's like it, if it, it has to be sort of proven and written about and had papers on it, and, and sort, of, sort of part of the mainstream to really sort of that's the thing I need to look for because yeah. it's proven. But actually, that's not. I think it's like someone said to me, like it was a couple of years ago, and like. I think someone's described spirituality as this the search for what it means to be human and when I heard that I was like oh hang on that is but that's that's all I that's basically my sort of underlying thing yeah. that I'm doing yeah and I think that helped me grasp onto it and before that I'd always seen it in terms of sort of religion and sort of just I basically just thought people were insane yeah that. and I but I, but I know now I'm sort of quite open to it because I think it's a really important part of it but I, I know like that it's really hard when people aren't are like like most people just drop as soon as that word comes up it's just dropped it and, yeah. and so I think it's sort of creating a new story around what that means as well and I think that's you raise a really good point I think because I think often people get spirituality and religion muddled up yeah. see it in the same light whereas religion is organised and uh, and you know often money making and, and harsh in terms of you know punishing people if they don't follow the right steps but spirituality is something within you that 
just about your connection with everything around you. And loss of spirituality is really loss of that connection. Yeah. I mean, I used to, used to like, pride myself on the fact that I wasn't a spiritual person, but now when I think of that, it's, it's basically priding yourself on, or was priding myself on not having a connection to myself. <laughs> I think that and that's sort of how I see it, and I think it's important because it, it, for, for me, anyway, it's, it all goes down to sort of like lack of sort of connection, of just not, just sort of like following what I thought I was meant to do, what I thought would look like acceptable to the outside world and to, to mm, other I people understand me that. And, and that. Yeah, and that got me into a place where I just didn't really want to be here anymore. I didn't want to exist. I didn't have any joy. The whole thing was a dark miserable place and I think that's I guess that's what pushed me to sort of eventually just be like okay this isn't working let's have to maybe start like opening up your mind to other things that you've completely written off but um it'd be nice if we could sort of have if I don't know I was wondering if, it, if it's possible to get to those sort of things without having to go through stuff like is is that what, to get to uh, I mean like to get to a point where, like where you can have a deeper connection with yourself without having to have like these sort of like really sort of tumultuous experiences and like really sort of, but like but then maybe it's not a, I'm just thinking maybe I'm just thinking out loud maybe it's not a, a case of um, avoiding them it's a case of being able to be guided through them like you were saying yeah. better well um what we do on morph medicine is we give people a variety mm. of tools. So we don't say, this is going to work, that's going to work. What, yeah. what we say is, um, take example grief and bereavement. So yeah. uh, we, we hold grief and bereavement, and we hold it and hold it, and it, we can around that we can hold guilt and all sorts of other feelings with it. And actually being able to let go of that grief and bereavement can be very hard for people because they feel they're letting go of the person. So what we do is we do several, we use several tools around letting go. And what we say to people is, this may work for you, it may not. But this is a tool that once you leave wolf medicine, you can use again and again if you want to. I found the most powerful tool on the wolf medicine program, for example, for letting go of everything that you're holding on to, is the labyrinth. Now that we know that labyrinths are thousands of years old, I think they've been dated back twelve thousand years, so pre-religion. So they existed before we had organised religion, and they exist right around the world. And they found a labyrinth in Egypt that's older than the pyramids, and it's underground for lakes. It's massive, uh, and they found labyrinths inscribed on ancient Sumer- Sumerian texts and mom you know, monuments. So we know labyrinths are part of a, a, a sacred tool. Do we want to call it sacred? Yes, yeah. That are very powerful in terms of releasing. And the labyrinth works by... It's different from a maze. So it works by you walk the same path in to the centre and then you walk the same path out. And uh, I think one of the most... Um, powerful things about it is you can use it in lots of different ways you can use it whatever religion you are or wherever you are spiritually to walk the labyrinth the first half to the center is your life up until this point now and you can place a burden down so if that's guilt and grief and 
uh, uh, it's about letting go. You place that burden down. You can do it physically because the body recognises the physical dynamics. It, do, it can't tell the difference. between. It's all to do with uh, neuroplasticity, but I won't go off on a tangent there. <laughs> I confuse myself as well. And, and you can put it down and the body recognises that you have physically put that burden down. It's a relief and a release and then you walk out of the labyrinth um, which is the rest of your life you're walking forward with all your senses mindfully and without carrying that burden the sense of relief people get from that never ceases to amaze me the emotional release the the physical release they walk out completely and utterly different you can observe it so some of these ancient tools that we've got that predate Christianity by a long, long time, but Christianity might have just, you know, adopted them. Thanks very much to Kim for sharing that and for the work that she does. I think it's really, really important. Um, weirdly, the day after we had this conversation, I'd, I'd been staying in my camper van in one of Kim's fields and I was out for a walk and I stumbled across an overgrown labyrinth in the field and I am. Um, decided to sort of do what she said and I've been feeling this sort of really strong intense feelings of loneliness and uh, I sort of sat with that and experienced what that was and I think it, it dug really deep down into this sort of feeling I sometimes have of just not being good enough and sort of not being able to connect to people which I think is just part of an old pattern I guess there's a bit of like sort of shame about who I am and that sort of thing which I, I don't really sort of associate with myself anymore but it's still there I guess it's been programmed in so I sort of took all that with me on this walk into the labyrinth and then stood in the middle with my arms stretched out in the air and facing the wind and the rain and I placed this box this box of shame and guilt and uh, wherever it was down into the middle of the labyrinth and then walked out and um, that's really powerful like I mean it's it's this way of it's not repressing emotions it's not trying to really rid yourself of them it's just letting go of this clinging to this these sort of negative patterns and these old stories and I really felt sort of for the next few days much lighter and much more comfortable just to be by myself and to just be if you ever stumble across a labyrinth I really advise you to do it it's great um, anyway, if you'd like to find out more about what Kim does, then check out her website, which is naturetherapy.com. No, wait, hang on, what is it? It is naturetherapycic.com. Uh, I'll put links down below. And uh, find out more about wolf medicine and the other things that Kim does. Um, if you'd like to find out more about my journey, mental health journey around the UK with Ministry of Change, then my website is www.theministryofchange.org. Uh, you can email me at marcus at theministryofchange.org. And also, please do check out my Patreon page. This is one of the ways that I'm trying to fund this project so I can try and spread these stories even further. Um, and that is patreon.com forward slash ministryofchange. And with that, you get early access to these podcasts. You get extra content, videos, blogs, uh, little musings. And, uh, and you really help me. And as I said at the beginning, it would also be great if you could uh, rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. Um, and that, again, really helps me spread these stories further. 
But mainly, I am very, very thankful for you to list for listening, and I hope to see you back here again soon. So goodbye.